This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Healthcare officials are trying to anticipate the demand on our hospitals in the next week or two. As we just heard today, the COVID-19 count surged to 4,789. The state positivity rate is 18.5. The bed count, particularly on the neighbor islands, is of concern. The case count at Kona Hospital yesterday triggered uh, it to go into crisis mode in the afternoon. And this morning, we talked to Hilton Rathel, president of the Healthcare Association of Hawaii, about the situation. The, yeah, the staffing situation is the most acute situation that we have, and that's because of the rampant spread of Omicron in the community, which is affecting you know teachers in our schools, it's affecting airline staff, it's, and it's affecting healthcare workers, unfortunately. So while the healthcare workers are not necessarily sick or, or in hospital, the fact that they've either been exposed or have tested positive is a real concern, and we have well over a thousand healthcare workers across the state, frontline healthcare workers. So we have other types of workers, you know, in our hospitals and healthcare facilities, but frontline healthcare workers, we have well over a thousand of those who are out of operation right now because of either exposure to COVID or because they've tested positive to COVID. And that includes um, on Kona, where they have a, a critical shortage right now. And so they are they and all our other hospitals are following the CDC revised guidelines, which does shorten the quarantine period for exposed um, or positive workers. And um, Kona just yesterday uh, had to go to third level. So there's conventional level contingency and then crisis. And just yesterday, Kona went into crisis. And so what does that mean? Well, what that means is that because we don't have enough staff, we're still waiting on the green light from FEMA to be able to bring staff into the state. We have applied for FEMA funding again for this surge, just like we got FEMA funding in August and September of last year, which we really appreciate. But we've not yet gotten the green light for this particular surge. We're expecting it, hopefully, maybe even today. And then we can start to bring some workers in, but it will be next week sometime at the earliest before we get workers in. So because there is so many, because our hospitals are full and because there are so many healthcare workers out, normally under the CDC guidelines, when someone is exposed to COVID or test positive, they would uh, be out for you know seven to 10 days, depending on the conditions and whether they have symptoms. Is so that your conventional level of care or the conventional standard where uh, the optimal standard uh, but then in the contingency if, if uh, you know if the need for staffing is more acute you can under that contingency level you can bring staff in after five days of, of exposure if they have no symptoms but if you're in crisis standards of care or a, if you're in this crisis mode what that means is that you can shorten the time and basically even if someone has if someone has mild symptoms they can still um, come into work and take care of patients they would of course be masked just like all of our staff are masked right now but it's you know the question the choice is do you ha- do you have not enough staff or do you bring in staff who are able to work even though um, in a more ideal scenario, you would give them more time to recover from their symptoms. 
Can you recall a time when, you know, any of your members had to be in this mode? This is the first time uh, throughout the entire pandemic we've not had any other period during the pandemic when, well, this wasn't really an option because CDC only provided this guidance as an option um, within the last couple of weeks. And the Department of Health, the Hawaii Department of Health has endorsed this as well. And so fortunately here in Hawaii, we have not had to do anything like this previously. Now, there have been some other states, Alaska, Idaho, um, a couple of other parts of other states, Wyoming, for example, that have had to enact crisis standards of care, um, similar, you know, with similar issues where you just don't have enough resources. But in Hawaii, up until now, we are fortunate that we have avoided this type of situation where we, because we have had enough workers, um, but the Omicron, the spread of the Omicron variant, and while it's not as severe in terms of symptomology, and in terms of the number of hospitalizations, it is still impacting our community tremendously. And this is one of the impacts and one of the reasons why we continue to advocate for um, mask wearing, safe distancing, um, vaccination and boosters is because of this type of a situation, which is not ideal for us, but it is necessary because we have so many patients and such an acute shortage of healthcare personnel, which will be alleviated materially, assuming we do get the green light from FEMA for this funding. And what are the positions that are in high demand as we you know, move into this next phase? Well, the primary, the primary needs we have are the same as they have been through the entire pandemic, which is nurses. So it is a mixture of, um, R, so these are RNs, which are registered nurses, which are ICU telemetry and med surge nurses. Now we have a less need for the ICU nurses right now because there are less um, COVID patients with Omicron in our ICUs, which is fortunate. But so we have a much bigger need for what we call medical, you know, the med surge units and the telemetry units, which are lower levels of care than ICU. So that is by far our biggest need. It was by far our biggest need in the Delta surge last year and the gamma surge in August and September of 2020. We also, however, have shortages of respiratory therapists, although that is less of a shortage now, again, because of the lower acuity. And there's a couple of other types of healthcare workers, but is overwhelmingly it is registered nurses that we are most in, short, most in need of and short of, and that is where the, the acute shortage is at um, Kona is nurses. And, you know, we did see Queen's uh, rollback uh, on, um, you know, the restrictions on visitors to their facility just because of the concern about the spread of this disease because, you know, their their staff was starting to get sick. Are we going to see more hospitals just institute policies about, you know, elective surgeries, that kind of thing? They may. We, we are working with our hospitals every day to ascertain what we need to do. Again, if we can get this FEMA funding and we have nurses lined up on the mainland, we have hotel rooms standing by that we've identified we can use, we have the rental cars identified, we have everything in place, but we, the agency we're working with, the mainland agency we're working with, does need, the well, we and the agency need the green light from FEMA. As soon as we get the green light from FEMA, assuming we do, then all the plans will just go into place and we'll get these 
first couple of hundred staff in as quickly as we can within a, within a few days, and then we'll bring in a subsequent waves of 200 plus each. Everything is in place to do that. If we can get that, we will be in good shape, and we will not need to go to other steps such as reducing elective surgeries and things like that. And one of the challenges, you know, we, uh, we call it elective surgeries, but, you know, if someone's got a knee-to-knee knee replacement, for example, it, it may not be urgent in the sense that, well, you know, like a heart attack, you need to treat it today. If someone needs a stent or has a stroke you got, or, you know, has a car injury, um, injury from a car accident, you need to treat that immediately. So may not need to replace that knee immediately, but there can be repercussions if you don't replace it soon enough because you can have further degeneration, further pain, etc., and it can be exacerbated. So these so-called elective surgeries, there's very few purely elective surgeries. I mean, you can talk about, you know, someone who needs a facelift, and that's, that's much more of a purely elective. But most of the surgeries we do in our hospitals are surgeries that do need to be done. It's just that they don't, may not necessarily need to be done today, but there are repercussions if they don't get done within a reasonable period of time. And they're the ones we are concerned about. And you can put them off for a little bit, but there can be negative consequences and fairly significant negative consequences if you put them off for too long. And so, and you, they still have to be done at some point. So, so it's not that in itself. And it, and even reducing these non-urgent surgeries uh, for a period of time doesn't have a huge impact on our hospitalizations because a lot of these surgeries don't require inpatient care. They're done on an outpatient basis. Someone may be monitored overnight. So only a small proportion of these cases end up being in a hospital for a period of days. And so they don't have a lot of impact on our hospital census. So unfortunately, we don't get a huge lift even if we were to shut down all of these non-urgent surgeries. And we will continue our conversation with Hilton Rathel, head of the Hawaii Healthcare Association, right after a short break. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Sutter Health Kahi Mohala, serving families, children, and adolescents with behavioral health services since 1983, dedicated to providing treatment for healing and hope. Sutter Health Kahi Mohala. Altered commutes, shifted schedules, sometimes your routine just doesn't line up with HPR's news programs, but you still want to stay connected. We make it easy. HPR's Island Insider Newsletter is a weekly roundup of local news stories from HPR's award-winning news team. It's one handy email in your inbox every Friday morning. Stay connected on your schedule. Sign up is easy and free at hawaiipublicradio.org slash newsletter. We're back with the conversation and recapping the new COVID case count today. 
Statewide, the health department is reporting 4,789 new cases, a new record for Hawaii. And that lifts the state positivity rate to 18.5%, with Honolulu at 20.5%. Big Island Maui both above 17%, and Kauai at just above 13 we continue a conversation that we had this morning with Hilton Rathel, head of the Hawaii Healthcare Association, about the situation. And, you know, the modeling group has forecast that we could maybe see the hospital census go up to three to 400 next week. Can you talk a little bit maybe more about the situation on the neighbor islands? I know the cases on Molokai have popped up. There's now, I believe it was 20 uh, yesterday on Lanai. But some of these smaller islands where they just do not have the medical capability that we do here on Oahu. Well, that is a very real challenge on those very small islands because uh, if you look at Lanai, for example, you've got a population of you know, just under 3,000. Um, and there is only a couple, literally only a couple of acute care beds. They do have some long-term care beds but they do not have the staffing or the infrastructure to take care of any serious number of inpatients or acute care patients. And Molokai has very limited capability as well. So if there were to be a material number of hospitalizations needed on either Lanai or Molokai, then we would need to move those patients to another island, either Maui or Oahu generally is what we move them to. And that you know, can be done. But it is obviously challenging to move six patients. It's expensive to move them. If you've got to use an air ambulance or a you know, fixed wing or a helicopter, it can be done and will be done if necessary. So the neighbor island challenge is a real problem. And again, just as a staffing issue is a problem on the neighbor islands, and all the neighbor islands are suffering from the exposure to Omicron and the rampant spread of Omicron in the community. So Anything that the public can do to reduce that spread not only helps them, but it also helps our healthcare workers as well. Well, it is troubling because I know we watched the case count go up in Maui as well, and those islands are part of that county, and there's no more room at the inn. Uh, that is troublesome. It is troublesome, and we do, we fully expect the hospitalizations to continue to climb. Um, over the next couple of weeks because of the case counts. The case counts have remained very, very high. We have uh, gone from, um, you know, on Monday this week when we're looking at the numbers, we had just uh, just over 200 patients on Monday of this week. A week ago on the 27th of last year, we had 100 patients. So we doubled our count within one week. Now it's, it's gone up, it's, but we think it's very possible and very reasonable given the case counts and the positivity rates that we could get up to as high, you know, three, four hundred cases and maybe even exceed 400 hospitalizations if these case counts remain high and if the infection rate remains high. When you've got an infection rate of 17, 18, 19, 20 percent, which it is in across the state and in, it's closer to 20 percent or even higher than 20 percent in some areas, that's very, very significant, and that tells us that, you know, a few days after, seven or ten days after you get those very, very high numbers, you are going to get another wave of hospitalizations. And so that's why this staffing issue is such a critical issue and why we're so anxious to you know, get that FEMA approval so we can bring in the additional staff we need. And then if there's anything else you want to implore the general public just at this point in time? 
it's um, this Omicron variant is the good news is that we have a lower rate of hospitalizations with Omicron and that we have a lower incidence of ICU cases proportionally than we did during the Delta surge. However, because Omicron is so rampant in the community, the total stress on our healthcare system, it's a very, very high risk surge, the Omicron surge. And so all of us need to be doing all we can to protect ourselves, protect our families, and help protect our healthcare workers. And so it's the same message we've been putting out there for a long time. Avoid these large gatherings. Um, stay, you know, if you're going to have a gathering, do it in a well-ventilated area. Get yourself vaccinated. If you're vaccinated, get yourself boosted. And just take care of yourself. We will get through this, but we need all of your help to do that. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much, Hilton. I really appreciate you carving time out again, you know, throughout this whole pandemic. I mean, we, we just needed to hear... Uh, a reassuring voice, and yet, you know, someone who can, you know, just clearly uh, in this time of crisis. So we really do appreciate your time with us. You're very welcome. We really do appreciate the opportunity. And Hawaii is an amazing place. We have done really well despite, Mm -hmm. you know, all the tragedy we've had during this pandemic. But we, we still need to be proud of what we have done as a community, and we will get through this together. The Omicron variant, while it's very rampant in the community, it does result in less hospitalizations Mm -hmm. and certainly less deaths. But it's having the biggest issue, again, is the impact on the workforce. We've got restaurants that have closed. We've got shops that have had to close because they don't have enough staff. We've got problems with the schools and the teachers and the airlines and and healthcare. So that's the biggest issue we've got is just the, the amount of exposure that's out there. And we need to get we believe that January will be the worst of this, mm. and by the hopefully by the end of January, um, we'll be on the other side of this curve. But that means we've got two or three weeks of, that's going to be really tough in front of us yet. We have been hearing from Hilton Rachel of the Hawaii Healthcare Association. He'd been advocating for tighter restrictions because of the surging case numbers and was fearful of the enclosed large gatherings in indoor venues over the New Year's holiday, but Honolulu Mayor Rick Blangiardi was adamant he would not clap da- uh, clamp down before then, only just yesterday, instituting limits on very few large events of 1,000 people through the end of the month. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. Today marks the one-year anniversary of the attack on the nation's capital by a group protesting the 2020 election results. So for today's Backyard Quiz, we are revisiting the site of an overthrow in 1893. That is when the Kingdom of Hawaii's last reigning monarch, Queen Liliuokalani, was evicted from Iolani Palace, and the troops of the newly formed provisional government took control of the kingdom's capital. Many know the story of the overthrow, but you may not know that Iwilani Palace that stands off of King Street in Honolulu 
is not the original Iolani Palace, and Iolani Palace wasn't its original name. The current version of the palace was built using brick and concrete and was completed in November 1882. The original Iolani Palace was a wooden stone building that became Hawaii's capital in 1845 and then was demolished in the late 1870s because of termite damage. So what we want to know for today's Backyard Quiz is prior to the demise of the original Iolani Palace and prior to it being renamed as Iolani Palace, what was the original Iolani Palace's name? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareed Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits providing senior rental housing for veterans in the islands, such as EAH Housing. NareedHawaii.com. At this hour, the Reapportionment Commission is meeting to resolve a dilemma about how to redraw voting districts. It just received updated numbers from the military about service members and their dependents living here in the islands. And it could mean adding a new House lawmaker for the Big Island and subtracting one from Oahu. We talked to Bill Hicks, chair of the Kailua Neighborhood Board, who has proposed a solution to keep districts from being split up. The retired military commander offered a solution to splitting up the Windward and East Honolulu districts, as well as a segment of West Oahu, for the commission to consider. Reapportionment occurs every 10 years. It's based on uh, census data. Hawaii extracts non-permanent residents from the census. So the non-permanent residents are primarily military and independents and college students who claim to be residents of a different state. The military uh, provided data 10 years ago and it was about 95,000 service members and dependents who are stationed here but are not Hawaii residents. They're residents of other states. This year, in the summer, the Reapportionment Commission received data from the military showing that the number was about 63,000 people, as I recall, roughly about a 30,000-person drop. It just didn't make sense. Intuitively, there's not been a one-third reduction in military presence in the last 10 years. So uh, people question the data, but it took a long time to get updated numbers from the military. At yesterday's meeting, it uh, was revealed that uh, the military numbers were provided to the commission staff on New Year's Eve. The new numbers are about 96 or 7,000, very close to what the numbers were 10 years ago and that intuitively makes sense. And that change in the 30,000 people is almost completely on Oahu. The, the military presence is about 98% on Oahu. And uh, that 30,000-person difference, a House seat, is about 27,000 people. That means that Oahu a House representation would go from 35 to 34, and the Big Island would go from 
seven to eight. So getting the population right is always step one. You have to complete step one before you go on to step two, redistricting, drawing the map. And so all the map making work that uh, has gone on for the last uh, many months for Oahu and the Big Island, it looks like that'll have to be redone. The commission meets Thursday at 10 a.m. They're going to decide what to do with this new data. If they accept the new data, they'll have to remake the Big Island and Oahu maps. If they don't accept the new data, and I'm not sure how they wouldn't, you know, then they continue. So the Big Island boundaries then, what could that stand to change? Well, on the Big Island, currently they've carved uh, the Big Island up into four Senate districts and seven House districts. With the new numbers, there'd have to be eight House districts. So every line for the House would change. But they would get better representation. Uh, The Big Island would receive more representation, go from seven to eight in the House, which is their fair share under the the new numbers. Oahu would have less representation going down from 35 to 34 representatives. So we're really at a critical juncture here because, you know, I know the uh, State Office of Elections wants things decided so it can move ahead with its plans, you know, for the election. There have been two issues that uh, have have really put them uh, behind the eight ball. One is the census itself was completed three or four months later than usual. And so with the late arrival of the census data, uh, this process started later than normal. And then to be many, many months into the process and uh, determine that the basic numbers, the population numbers that are step one uh, were wrong, that imposes uh, another serious issue. So we're at the beginning of January, and March 1st is the date that the candidates can file for office, but you can only run for office if your residence is within a district. So you need to know what the districts are in order for candidates to file March 1st. So there's not a lot of time, but they have to get it right. Clarify for us, so what is the deadline for the commission to decide this? The uh, court's have said that a final plan has to be established in February. And the process that the commission needs to go through is Thursday's meeting, decide how they're going to incorporate the new population numbers. Then the public and and the technical committee will work on redrawing the district lines. Uh, There should be a period of public comment and review The technical committee needs to present a revised plan at a commission meeting, and then the commission cannot take action at that meeting. They they would have to wait until another meeting. So I think think we're looking at at least three more commission meetings, unless they decide, no, we're going to ignore the new population numbers and just press ahead. But the fuse Uh, of of a timeline is, is, is very short, then, if we're to hold to the March 1st. That's correct. It's very short. It's doable. I, I believe, anyway, it's it's doable, and it can be done right. But uh, it, it has to be uh, as open and transparent and as possible and done uh, in, with as much cooperation and coordination as possible. If the commission just steamrolls ahead and goes with its plan at this point without making any modifications because of the new numbers, what's the likelihood of a legal challenge? I think that if the commission were to press ahead 
uh, there could be many legal challenges. One would be improper extraction of the non-permanent resident population, which if you don't have the right population numbers to start with to, 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 to write lines, it'd be easy to to declare it invalid. There is at least the appearance of some gerrymandering to draw lines to favor an individual politician. I think that would be problematic. There are a number of uh, constitutionally directed criteria that have seemingly not been followed. For example, each House district is supposed to be, where practicable, fully contained within one Senate district. So you could have better coordination and synergy between representatives and senators covering the same area. Right. That makes sense. Well, there are four House districts on Oahu that uh, cross the boundaries of four different Senate districts. So in four cases, you'll have representatives having to coordinate with four different senators. And then another seven House districts on Oahu that cross the boundaries of three Senate districts. So So it's a bit of a head scratcher. um, yeah, it's not following the, the, the constitutional criteria. And then uh, districts should be compact, contiguous, all geographic boundaries. Uh, my, my district, uh, House District 51 in Kailua, has uh, always been Kailua and Waimanalo. Mm-hmm. And uh, the proposal came out to cut out some of Kailua, uh, wrap around Makapu'u Point, and add uh, parts of Hawaii Kai going down to Portlock. So uh, you're mixing East Honolulu with Windward Oahu in a district, which, you know, could be the basis for another challenge. So there, there are multiple things that, that, that could be legally challenged, I, I believe. This is really a cornerstone of our democracy because our democracy is based on, on apportionment of representation. And if you don't do apportionment correctly, if there's gerrymandering or political advantage, it results in polarization and it results in the silencing of certain voices. And so it's really important that the apportionment of representation is done fairly. That was Bill Hicks, a member of the Kailua Neighborhood Board who offered the Redistricting Commission members a different way of drawing the voting districts, trying to keep communities intact. The commission meeting got underway earlier this morning. And it's time for our daily reality check with our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat. Where's the beef? That's the featured story today. It's a look at the challenges for our cattle industry. And reporter Thomas Heaton joins us. Good morning, Thomas. Good morning. So you uh, were looking at a number of aspects uh, that uh, you know on the landscape with our, our cattle ranchers. Um, what, what what struck you? Yeah, so the the cattle industry has been facing uh, several problems. I mean, ever since their inception, they've been changing, adapting um, to everything that's been thrown at them. Um, And the most recent development is a a degree of optimism among uh, ranchers in terms of being able to keep more beef here in Hawaii, which is a stark um, difference to the current model, which is called the cow-calf model, 
in which um, essentially herds of cows here in Hawaii birth calves and then at about up to 10 months of age they are sent to the mainland to be fed on feedlots or you know just ranches there and then they kind of get introduced into the greater beef industry. So keeping more calves, keeping those calves here, feeding them on the grass is becoming more possible because of an investment in local slaughterhouses. So this model, this cow-calf operation, and it's kind of like the queen bee industry where we produce queen bees and then we send them abroad or, um, gosh, you know, the corn seed, right? We produce a, a seed and then we send it away. Yeah, it's, it's 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 not completely dissimilar. I think that yeah, there are certainly some parallels there where you know the product is started here in the uh, Great Hawaiian conditions, and then they're sent off um, to the mainland. So why are uh, are ranchers a little optimistic? So what happened is is from about 2019 until now, a billionaire from Idaho, a man named Frank Vandersloot. Um, who made his money with a wellness company called uh, Melaleuca, forgive me if I'm saying it wrong, um, he came to Hawaii, he bought up a, a bit of land on Kauai, and he has a history of ranching. He grew up on a ranch in Idaho. Um, and he came and he saw that the problems that was happening with the slaughterhouse industry, the plant on Oahu, one of the biggest was um, essentially tanking, and then another on Hawaii Island, Big Island, um, was looking to, you know, sell. So he he stepped in, he invested, and he's doubled their capacity. So uh, what it looks like really is there's far more capacity for local beef to stay in to stay in Hawaii um, and to get to Hawaiian com- customers. And so now this beef, it's grass fed. Yes, so that's that's the difference. Is the reason for the whole cow sorry, uh, cow calf operation is because the feedlots shut down here, um, and the slaughterhouses slowed down in turn. So the cows were sent to uh, the mainland. But what's happened now is, you know, the slaughterhouses have now got better capacity, so they can keep uh, cows here. But that means because there isn't the feed, that means they're going to grass-fed beef. Now, I have to admit, I really have not tried grass-fed beef, I don't think. And so I know in your article you talk uh, to people who have tried it, and some they say, well, it's different. It's not what we're used to. But you're used to it, right? <laughs> yes, I am. I, I grew up on this stuff. I'm a grass-fed, beef-fed uh, New Zealander. It's it's the norm in New Zealand and Australia uh, and places around the um, in, around uh, South America as well. It's um, There is a difference in taste, though. That, that is certainly true, and I understand that um, it's not to perhaps American taste because they're not used to it. So the difference is essentially grass-fed beef is leaner. Some people say it's gamier. Um, grain-fed beef, which is the norm here in the U.S., it's fattier. Um, and, of course, that brings a different taste with it. So, Well, I, yeah, like, divided I like fat. <laughs> <laughs> As do I. <laughs> and, and so, yeah, but there is hope that um, – uh, that we can somehow, you know, with the focus on sustainability is maybe keep some of these calves here and and um, and, and eat them ourselves instead of being <laughs> sending, you know, sending those calves out abroad. Yes, no, absolutely. And I think that, you know, it's already been seen. Some of these 
um, ranchers who have been in the business for a long time are keeping some of their calves that were going to be sent onto the mainland. They're keeping them here, feeding them the grass and then keeping them for a little bit longer because, of course, they have to stay here a bit longer to get to full size before um, being taken taken to uh, the slaughterhouse All right. and fed to Hawaiians. Well, uh, I'm going to go out and, and, and check out grain-fed beef. <laughs> Thanks so much, uh, Thomas, and we can chat later about that. <laughs> Great. Sounds good. Thanks. We have been talking to reporter Thomas Heaton with today's Reality Check. Uh, To read the full story, visit org. Support for HPR comes from Kumu Kahua Theatre. The historical drama, The Conversion of Ka'ahumanu, explores the Queen's personal journey towards the adoption of Christianity, January 20th to February 20th, kumukahua.org. Recently on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, Mo Rocco talked about the heartbreak of the latest COVID wave. Yeah, you hear about somebody having a breakthrough and you think, good for you, and then it turns out it's an infection. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Peter Sagal. On this week's show, we ask Woody Hobart, astronaut bound for the moon, if he's practicing what he's going to say when he lands, unlike that other guy. Join us for Wait, Wait from NPR. Beginning Saturday morning at 11, following Radiolab. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, committed to offering the community inspiration and learning through art and education. Learn more about gift memberships at honolulumuseum.org slash join dash give. For today's Backyard Quiz, we asked if you knew the original name of the original Iolani Palace. The brick and concrete palace that stands in downtown Honolulu has only been around since 1882. Construction on the original Iolani Palace started nearly 40 years earlier when Kikuana Oa, a chief who served as governor of Oahu, began building a large home as a gift to his daughter. But before she could move in, Kamehameha III purchased the estate and used it as his residence after moving the kingdom's capital to Honolulu from Lahaina in 1845. It was a wooden stone building and largely meant for receiving foreign dignitaries and state functions. It was very simple in design, but at the time was the grandest house in town until it began to show the effects of termite damage. It was demolished after Kalakaua became king in 1874. And so the monarchy said goodbye to what what had once been Haleali'i, or House of the Chiefs, the original name of the original Iolani Palace, and the answer to today's backyard quiz. Haleali'i was renamed Iolani Palace during Kamehameha V's reign in honor of his brother, Kamehameha IV, whose full name includes Iolani. And that was today's quiz. We had no winners. But if you have an idea for us, uh, write to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org. A hundred and fifty-six years ago today, the first dozen people diagnosed with leprosy or Hansen's disease touched down at Kalopapa. It was there at the remote settlement that they would live in isolation, and they'd be joined by some 8,000 others sent there in an effort to curb the spread 
of a disfiguring disease that had no cure. In honor of their memory, members of the Kaohana o Kalopapa worked to have January designated as Kalopapa Month. Governor David Ige signed the bill into law last year, and 2022 marks its first commemoration. Keholani Lum can trace her roots to three residents of the settlement and has been focused on making sure the stories of the settlement aren't forgotten. The words of the residents themselves say it best. For Like John Aruda, who said that Kalaupapa Month would be a time to think about all our people who were sent here, all that we went through and who we are. So for us, it's... It's a, we're just carrying the lineage um, in deep gratitude to our ancestors and to hopefully bring light to the stories that are so important and pertinent to us all today. As we struggle with this pandemic and everything mm-hmm. that we've seen and experienced over the last, gosh, two years, the fact that the settlement there actually saw its first residents on January 6th. There were, what, a dozen people that were first sent there. That's right. That's what the understanding is, that the first 12 citizens were sent to Kalaupapa Peninsula uh, because of government policies regarding leprosy. And they arrived there. Not much is known about them other than their names, but we believe that some of them actually brought Kokua, family member, with them uh, to help care for them. So that happened 156 years ago. It started with 12. That number swelled to 8,000. And today we just have a a handful of of residents left there at the settlement. That's true. And actually, when you think about it, it covered a period of actively of about uh, over a century. So that number was sent there over a century, but it doesn't include even the families who extend beyond the, the ones who were sent away and never to return to their families. When when we think of that, we don't even know the actual extent, the fullness of the impact on all of us, because many of them were taken away as children, uh, who, which was the situation with our family. Uh, three children were taken away, uh, aged 9, 16, and 10. Two of them perished there and so left no descendants directly. Uh, one of them, who I only became introduced to later in my life, was able to live a full life and transform a, a really horrific experience into a place of inspiration, and he would eventually call his beloved home. You have then this direct tie to that community, and you know, as the numbers dwindle, it's so important to keep the stories alive of the people who were part of that settlement? Yes, we're now talking about, in my case, this is third generation since they were first sent there. Some have not even had a chance to ever meet them. And so what they will learn of them, like all of us who are so intimately involved in genealogy and wanting to know who we are and who we come from, it's even more important for us to study, research, and try to learn about them. And that's what the beauty of this recognition of a month is, is it gives us opportunities to really focus our attention, uh, to remember the ancestors, uh, to advocate for more teaching in classrooms about them, and even in churches, uh, and throughout the community as much as possible. Because it's, 
you know, for so long, the stories were silenced, right? People didn't talk about them. My grandma's generation, she didn't talk to us about it. We only knew that she had a brother who was sent there. And it wasn't until much later that I finally, finally got to meet him and to know. And it's uh, it will be a very sad loss for the families and for Hawaii uh if we allowed this period to go without being commemorated. Especially today, as you point out, as we ourselves have been faced directly with a similar situation of a disease entering Hawaii, not knowing much about it, not having access to resources to combat it for a long time. But what we experience today, though it may feel like imprisonment, it's actually not what 8,000 people who were sent to Kalaupapa experience. For them, it was truly prison. You know, there was fear, there was isolation back then. And, you know, we recall when the vaccines came to Kalaupapa, the COVID-19 vaccines, and we talked to the sisters there, the nuns, Mm -hmm. who were helping, I guess, play traffic cop that day as, you know, uh, they were trying to uh, get the vaccines uh, into the arms of the residents there and the staff. And so it was really kind of a I guess a, a, a day to reflect on just the history of Kalaupapa and the parallels that we're going through today with the pandemic. The parallels and actually the inspiration that they all have left us um, because so many, the stories that are continue to unfold as the Ohana is able to conduct more research and more importantly connect and reconnect um, family members with Kalaupapa, um, with their ancestors, even every little tidbit, you know, morsel of information, a photograph, a name, a small story, something that helps us to know who they were. And many of them went on to be great leaders and, and very important in their community and even uh, for Hawaii and, and the world. Um, so there's, this, there's something in there that is very vital to all of us to be able to take a breath and realize uh, we're not the first ones to go through this. We are blessed because the same department that still continues to oversee the settlement is is today helping us to uh, address this situation in, in I'd say, a, a loving uh, and compassionate way. I know that the pandemic kind of threw some cold water on the efforts to fundraise for the memorial that's planned for Kalapapa. Yeah, yeah. It, it's really ironic. I remember writing my testimony to present to the legislature and actually going down there. And not only my testimony, but I was also representing a kupuna who could no longer speak in person to talk about how she had been championing this for, uh, for over a decade. And it was ironic to find out that we couldn't go any further because of a pandemic. It's as though not only were they harmed in life, but even in death, we're still confronting this need to bring light to the situation. And so share with our Uh, listeners, you you would like to have this uh, memorial with the names of all 8,000 of those uh, patients inscribed on there. Yes, to the extent that it's possible, absolutely. Because, you know, 8,000 people were sent there, but only... Over a thousand graves are actually marked today, so 
So in my family's situation, while three were sent there, only one has a headstone. Uh, two of them are not marked. And so the majority of people who were sent there uh, do not have the benefit of a space, a sacred space, where descendants can go and place offerings, flowers, lay, mementos, and center ourselves and find peace. Um, the stigma created by the exile of the people was carried generationally. And so today you find many families still having to, to address that, right? to heal, to recover from all of that, and to move to transform shame into pride. And so if folks want to donate to this cause... They can contact the Ohana. There are many ways that um, donations can be made. There's, there's a website that the, the Ohana uh, maintains. Um, there's a Facebook site. You can actually um, send it in by mail to the P.O. Box 1111 in Kalaupapa, 96742. My understanding is that the goal is to raise $5 million, or a minimum of $5 million, to actually construct it because we have to bring everything in move in there ah, and, and okay. create it. Um, and so you have to bring all of the equipment and such there. And then an additional five or so million to be able to serve as an endowment to sustain it. The Ohana feels very strongly that we want to make sure that it can stay in perpetuity. And so really to the credit of the ones who are leading this, that is the vision. That was Kaolani Lum, who was on the board of directors for Ka'ohana Okalopapa. She was talking about a fundraising effort for a memorial to honor the patients of Kalopapa, many who are buried in unmarked graves in the refuge. The first step, Lum said, is to commemorate January as Kalopapa Month to draw attention to the vision to keep the settlement stories alive. There are only about a half a dozen patients at Kalopapa left today. From the mountains to the sea, to your valley's green. Your beauty, it's And that's it for us today. And, you know, we would love to hear your wishes for 2022. Share your resolutions or just your hopes for the future. Share something encouraging. We all could use it right now. Call our Talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also connect with social media, Facebook and Twitter. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.